brothers, sisters, and friends, I will not be moving about this evening to lend emphasis to my remarks because I'm hope temporarily so handicapped. So perhaps it would serve a good purpose. Even so, you'll at least be able to hear me because of necessity I'll have to stand right in front of the microphone. To the best of my knowledge and belief, though my arms are immobilized, I'm still laboring under the impression that my mind is all right. But that will remain to be seen. The series of lectures which I shall endeavor to give to this school in the next few nights will be within the framework of law and grace. Two simple words, but containing a wealth of information in them. If you and I could fully appreciate what Paul was endeavoring to say in his sixth chapter of Romans, we indeed would have a wonderful comprehension of God's plan and purpose and how it operates. The psalmist tells us, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We could appropriately paraphrase that verse and say, Thy law is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. By it we will be able to differ differentiate between what the Lord requires and what he does not require. Such knowledge is power. It is part of the power of the gospel that has the power unto salvation. Now, if I could write on the board there, I would like to illustrate my remarks tonight, but I will say that for tomorrow night. I might as well be optimistic. If I'm able to write, I will certainly endeavor to do that. But I want you to visualize with me a piece of paper on one side has debits, on the other side has credits, the left side and the right side. And in one, two, three order on the left side, one, two, three order, I would write law, sin, and death. And then on the right side of the page, opposite law, I would write grace, then under grace, righteousness, and light. So if you can visualize in your mind what I have done, you will see on one side, law, sin, and death, grace, righteousness, and light. And then if we read from left to right, we'll find an antidote for each one of those items. Opposite law, we will find that the antidote for law would be grace. Opposite sin, we would find that the antidote for sin is righteousness. And opposite death, we would find that the antidote of life, I mean of death, is life. Now there are fundamental principles by which the deity himself has ordained. And there is no deviation therefrom, whether we like it or not. 
So we might as well humble ourselves before God and submit to His will because these things have been written aforetime for our learning and for our comfort that through patience for our learning and for our admonition that through patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. Now what is a definition of law? It's a three-letter word and the definition could be is very simple. Law means a rule of action and that definition is true of any law. Man-made law laws of nature, municipal law, or ecclesiastical law. Now, as you well know, mankind in society has written volumes upon volumes defining law, the interpretation and the application thereof. For instance, the municipal law is not only a rule of action, but it is a rule of action prescribed by the supreme power within a state commanding what is right and prohibiting what is wrong. But what we are interested in is divine law which supersedes and transcends any man-made law. So when I speak of law, I like to qualify it beforehand and speak of divine law. Now when it comes to divine law in the pages of scripture we have three phases of it given. That which was given in the Garden of Eden known as Edenic law, that which was given at Mount Sinai approximately 1500 years before Christ known as the Mosaic law and that which was ushered in in zero time known as the law of the spirit of life and Christ Jesus. Now there's a wealth, wealth of information to be obtained from those three phases. What do we mean by Edenic law? When was it given? When was it placed into force? And ask, answer the question, has it been terminated? And we find that the Edenic law is so named because it was the law of God given in the Garden of Eden to our first parents. The sum and substance of which said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now there's one thing all law has in common, otherwise it's no longer law. And that is, in order for a rule of action to be law, it must have a penalty attached to it when there's an infraction of that rule. If there's no penalty imposed, then that which you had thought was law is no longer law. It may be just a simple rule, but even simple rules have penalty attached to them. So law, divine law, has a penalty attached to it conditioned upon it being broken. And there's one thing about divine law that is not in common with man-made law. And that is divine law, when it is broken, unless some provision is provided, it always invariably carries the death penalty. So it's severe. Now the Edenic law that was given in the Garden of Eden 
was broken, as you well know, by our first parents. And because law was transgressed, sin for its first time came into existence because sin only exists by transgression of law. So we see that law is a cause, sin is a result of breaking that law. Now sin, that has come into existence, we have to consider that. Now we find that sin is transgression of God's law. When we transgress man-made law, we speak of ourselves as either being transgressors of the law or criminals, petty infractions of the law, but it's not spoken of in a primary sense as being sin. Although breaking man's law could very well be sin because that's within the framework of God's law which says, among other things, obey the powers that be and if you obey not the powers that be to that extent you've not only broken man's law but you've also broken God's law. Now we find that sin exists in three phases. In a positive phase, a negative phase, and a conditional phase. Sin in any form, positive, negative, or conditional, carries with it the death penalty. The simplest illustration of a positive sin is to break God's law which says, Thou shalt not steal. You then do something that you should not do, therefore it's a positive sin. A negative sin is to fail to obey the law of Christ when he says if there's a brother in distress and you have the opportunity to lend to him a helping hand and you neglect to do so, you haven't done anything, that's just it. You're permitted to do that which should have been done. So that negative sin may also be spoken of as a sin of omission. And then there's a sin of condition that we find ourselves in when we find ourselves born into the land of the living as babes. That too carries the death penalty. One of the first things that we learn is that someday, sometime, we must die. That is a law of nature. Now how did these things come into operation? The Edenic law was given to Adam and Eve. They transgressed. And as a result of that transgression, sin came into force. And it's like a chain reaction. The result of sin is death. Now it would help to clarify things if we will always keep in mind that things always operate in that order. Law, sin, and death. You have to first have law before you can have sin. You must first have sin before you can have death. And we find that those three things are in operation today, therefore we have law, sin, and death. How about that sin of condition? That sin of condition is operative on a federal principle, a physical law of our beings. Because when God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, the entire human race were within the loins of Adam and Eve. Therefore, that condemnation, the physical effects of which was placed upon all their posterity, Christ himself not being, not being accepted. 
So when we are born into this world, we find ourselves in a deplorable state. Some people take the philosophy of the Epicureans and say, let us eat, drink, and be merry, and drink of the dregs of life, because tomorrow we die. The others take it to the other extreme and believe that life best consists of the ascetic type of life, according to the philosophers of the Stoics, who believe that the greatest virtue consists in complete self-denial. We find, as I have emphasized before, that the truth lies between these two extremes. There are some things we must do in order to be saved. There are some things we must not do in order to be saved. And there are some things we're not even compelled to do positively or negatively. It is our purpose to try to clarify in your mind what does the Lord require of thee. He has expressed to the prophet Micah, he has showed the old man what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord thy God. It is not our endeavor and will not be our endeavor to place any restriction upon you that is not substantiated by a thus saith the Lord, because we want freedom of action rather than restriction of action. So in that, keep that in mind, we find that the death that came into the world was not a temporal death, but to the contrary, a, an eternal death. And since that time, 6,000 years ago, multitudes of multitudes, countless, have come and gone, passed off the scene of life. We're not going to study these things because it concerns history, because such knowledge is an empty virtue unless it has an application in our lives today. The only reason we want to study the past is to enable us to better cope with the present and the future. With a degree of confidence and serenity of not being able to say to yourself, I know where I'm going, I know to what end was I born, and for what purpose God has in me as an individual if I identify myself with his plan and purpose. I do not think that it's necessary to go into great length to define for you what death is. Too many tears have been shed to make us realize what that is. But in order for us to appreciate the love that God has showed to us, the children of men, we must understand what grace is and what righteousness consists of and the end result, eternal life. I asked the question on one occasion to a class, what was grace or what is grace? And a young lady raised her hand and I recognized her and she says, I would say grace is that which is graceful. We can use words with a vague understanding without having a clear understanding. Well, I'd have to admit that in her answer there is some degree of rightness. Grace, that which is graceful, usually has beauty to it. And the beauty of the Lord is full of grace. But if for purposes of clarification we have to be more technical than that, 
And the best way I know how to convey to individuals or a group the meaning of terms is to give simple illustrations that you already know, but perhaps you have not thought of in that particular vein. Now most of us in life, sometime or another, are called upon to go to a bank to borrow money. We keep telling ourselves it's just a temporary measure, but we go there to borrow money. And to illustrate the point, I need $100. I go there and sign a promissory note that 30 days after date, I will promise to pay the $100. Even the commercial world utilizes grace. But they first have it preceded by law. And that's exactly what God does. The law came before grace. And the law that they employ is known as commercial law, which reads that 30 days after date that note becomes due and payable, no ifs or ands or buts about it. But the bank will extend to you what is known as a three-day grace period. So even though it is due and payable on the first of the month, if you as an individual do not get there and until the third of the month, it is accepted in the eyes of the bank that you were not delinquent. It was accepted as though you had paid it on the first. So what have they done? They have extended to you unmerited favor, something to which you are not legally entitled to, but which they graciously have extended to you. Now that same definition of grace would hold to is true when we read it in the sixth chapter of Romans. Grace of God is unmerited faith, something to which you are not legally or morally entitled to. Therefore, it's a gift. Now, what is grace? It is something extended that accepts as though you had already done something which you actually have not. According to the law, you have been three days delinquent in paying your note. Because of the utilization of grace, that is not held against your credit record. Never brought against you. <clears throat> now, what does grace do? It's an antidote to law. It steps in and does what the law is not capable of doing. Because under the law, particularly the law of Moses, where we have so many details of it enumerated, we find that according to the law of Moses, every transgression received a just recompense of reward. By it you were justified, by it you were condemned, and gave no quarter and asked not. It worked on the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But we can say this in its favor. It was just. It may have been without mercy, but it was just. And the Apostle Paul did not quarrel with the law. He said it was holy, just, and good. And it was. But when it was applied to human nature, what effect did it have? Instead of lifting man up, it condemned him. And strangely enough, we find that is the very purpose that the law was given. So if I were to ask the question out here in the audience and say, give me the answer, why was law given? 
you might reasonably say it was given in order to eliminate sin. And on the surface that sounds logical. But from the scriptural point of view, that is not the reason the law was given. The law was given for a contrary effect, in order that sin might become exceedingly sinful. Because it's only by our knowledge of the law that sin is made manifest. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no transgression, there is no sin. Now, in order that you may better be able to appreciate that, I will also give you an illustration. Sometimes I had a person tell me that these illustrations you give, any resemblance between conveying a thought and uh, confusing a person is purely coincidental. But I think if you will pay attention to me, you will get what I am endeavoring to put across. And I can use this pencil. When you look at this pencil from out there, it's a perfect pencil. No blemishes on it. But if we bring it up under a strong light, a magnifying glass, we would find that there are many imperfections in that pencil that are not made obvious or visible until they are subjected to close scrutiny. And that is exactly what the law of Moses did to human nature. It placed, as it were, it, as it were, under a microscope. So the imperfections of human nature were made manifest. And how were they made manifest? Because it was so restrictive in its operation. Thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that. You cannot even gather sticks on the Sabbath day. And human nature being what it is, and it's the same today as it was then, could not keep the law. So that which was ordained to life became in reality a ministration of death. For what purpose? That flesh might be abased and that God may, might be exalted. So that in the flesh and those that dwell therein would have no occasion under any circumstances to have whereof to glory. So you can see, brethren, that indeed eliminates pride. We have there's no place for it in our lives. Now, <clears throat> that law was given in order that sin might become exceeding sinful. Then you might, and because human nature being what it is, they were all condemned by some phase of the law. No individual lived for any length of time, with the exception of Christ, that was not guilty of some infraction of that law. So that which was ordained to life became in reality a ministration of death. Well then, how can a person be saved? We can only be saved by the administration of grace, this unmerited favor. And I like, in order to emphasize the application of grace, I'm going to make a statement that may be shocking to you, but don't stand up and, uh, and protest at this point because I'm qualified. I will endeavor to explain it away to your satisfaction. I make this statement, if you have followed me closely, that in the light of what I've already said, no one, unless they are absolutely perfect, will get into the kingdom of God. No one. There is no place in God's plan and purpose for sin to be rewarded with life. 
because the result of sin is death and God is not the author of confusion and I said sin in any phase has as its result the death penalty so I make the statement in the light of those things that no flesh unless it's absolutely perfect will get into the kingdom of God and if I left it there your reaction would be the same as mine but we might as well close the school up down everything connected with it because we are fighting a losing battle. Because even if I try and you try, can you honestly say according to the thoughts and the intents of your heart that you are perfect, that you walk and sin not, that you think and sin not, and speak and sin not? The answer is negative. We are all guilty. Some to a greater degree than others, but we are all guilty. And in the light of the statement that I made, if you're guilty just to a degree, that will earn for you the death penalty. It's just like a criminal who has already been legally condemned by the powers that be for being guilty of murder. He's going to be executed. He has nothing to lose by being guilty of two murders because the end result of that is death. And whereas he may be guilty of several murders, uh, murders, he can only receive one death. And when such an individual as that escapes from a penal institution before the execution of justice, the word goes out, he is an exceedingly dangerous individual. He has nothing to lose. And he would spare no one in order to save himself. So that puts us in a very dark light until we consider grace. Now this is how grace operates. Grace can only operate where there has been transgression of law. And it's grace that gives us eternal life. And the Apostle Paul, even in his day, anticipated an abuse of that precious element of grace. In the opening words of the chapter read by the brother, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin in order that grace might abound? If grace can only operate where there has been transgression of law and we can only be saved by grace, well then should we react upon that and sin a lot in order that there will be plenty and ample room for grace to operate? He says, God forbid. He says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? It is something there to supply the sufficiency of every individual here present tonight. But under no circumstances is it is to be used in a presumptuous sense. It is only to be used where necessity dictates that it has, a, has to be used. And the apostle, another apostle, emphasizes that point when he says, we have not been redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold which has a monetary valuation we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ now Christ is the one that brought into force the operation of grace now I'm just going to use arbitrarily speaking my own examples on a percentage basis. The percentage is not true according to fact, it's very true according to illustration. Christ represents 
For the sake of illustration, Peter, James, and John, and the other apostles would say, represent 90%. Christ is 100% perfect. Peter, James, and John are 90% perfect. So therefore, in order for them to get into the kingdom, it is necessary for them to have 10% of the right of the grace of Christ. To supply the deficiency which they had to bring them up to a state of perfection. So in their case, they needed 10%. Now, arbitrarily speaking, we will let 70 cents be failures. If through presumptuousness, willfulness, neglect, we don't even qualify for our 70% degree of righteousness, then we do not even qualify for the other 30% of Christ's grace in order to bring us into a state of righteousness. So we see that there is a standard, or a substandard, below which, if we fall, not even the grace of Christ can save us. But for purposes of illustration, if we all here tonight had 70% of righteousness, then we need 30% of the grace of Christ to bring us into a state of righteousness. Therefore, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our stewardship for those things that we have done in the body, and we have said unto us by the grace of Christ, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and thou into the joys of the Lord. You can rest assured that you qualified for his saving grace that brings you into a state of perfect righteousness so that God, consistent with his previous plan and purpose, can be in a position to confer upon you eternal life. Do you remember on one occasion when Christ was speaking about the kingdom? And he enumerated the things that were required of his followers, like uh, let a man deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, or he that has put his hand to the plow and looketh back is not worthy of the kingdom. And after enumerating those things, the disciples said, Well, Lord, who then can be saved? And Christ said, With man many things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. And it's his grace that makes that possibility a reality. Now I'd like to make this statement. The law of Moses dealt with facts. With facts that were almost corporeal in substance. Facts to this extent. That in order for a person to be guilty of murder under the law, he had to be guilty of murder ipso facto. In fact, he had to actually kill a man. For a person to be guilty of moral transgression, he actually had to actually commit immorality. Under the law of Christ, it transcends even to a higher degree than the law of Moses, because God is not concerning with what you actually do or don't do. He is concerning with the thoughts and intents of the heart. He that looketh upon one to unlawfully desire one hath committed adultery in his heart already. He that hateth his brother is a murderer. So we see that the law of Moses, as high as it was, ipso facto, no one could attain unto eternal life because by every transgression 
Every transgression received a just recompense of reward. We find that its counterpart, the laws of Christ, are even higher in the sense that they are concerned with the thoughts and the intents of the heart that precedes action. And the only reason why we can obtain eternal life under the laws of Christ, which was not possible under the laws of Moses, is because the operating principle of grace is enforced, whereas under the law of Moses it did not operate. Well, <clears throat> such grace brings us into a state of righteousness. I don't know whether you can see this or not. Well, here on this page here, on the debit side, I have law, sin, and death. On this side over here, I have grace, righteousness, and life. The antidote to law is grace. The antidote to sin is righteousness. The antidote to death is life. So the antidote on this side is that whereas law, the transgression of which brings sin, and sin the result of which brings death, God by his mercy has provided the antidote and having grace to neutralize the effects of law righteousness to neutralize the effects of sin and life, life eternal, to neutralize eternal death. Now there's a lot to be said about those things. I just wanted to give you an introductory remarks to them. I'd like for you to think about what I've said and tomorrow evening, the Lord willing, we will go into greater detail and instances of the operation of these principles.